over the cliff were hanging by a thread. And it's amazing how many people don't, don't realize that. They think that, oh, isn't what we're doing so wonderful? Well, that may be, but the people that I'm talking to are very well educated, but they're they're not critical thinkers. And we've produced a generation since those who graduated school from the probably the late '60s are not good critical thinkers. And and um, I would say from the middle to late baby boomers on, we we really haven't educated. They've been more brainwashed and educated through the public school system. And unless you've gone out and done a lot of additional work or anything, you don't really understand a lot of these dynamics. They just haven't been made clear. And so I've been surprised by some people that I've talked to who've actually made comments, well, why isn't socialism good? And my response to that is, if you're so far down the road that you don't know the answer to that, you you don't need to even be voting. Why are you even alive? You're you know I get impatient. You know if if you have to ask a question like that, you're I don't have time to waste with you. You know you're just dumber than dirt. I, I know I shouldn't be that way. That's just my little impatience in nature. But uh, unfortunately, and and they don't want you to correct them. You know, isn't that right, Franklin? They don't want to listen to that. I mean, Franklin's had the same kind of conversations with folks. We've talked about it. <laughs> no, it, it, it's amazing. They don't want to hear. They don't want, they don't know how to put forth the mental perspiration to think through the issues. They just want to do what somebody they like tells them is right, and they've been hearing it from the same sources for most of their life, so they, they just don't know how to. How to, how to operate any differently. So now that I've gotten us all out of fellowship, <laughs> we need to uh, refocus just a second on something. I need to find something with a little weight on it here to hold this down. Okay. And, um, and we need to uh, get into what we're looking at. Now, I was going to do something right before we got started here. Let me put a open up Logos and put it over there. All right. Now, okay, let me get Logos open. This is always kind of... That's not right. Let me... Okay, let's see if that'll work. Now that's weird. Okay. That's really weird. No. No, I'm I'm probably I'm okay. Okay. It's just weird because what it was showing over there is, um, I got to look at one other thing. Oh, I know what it is. I know what it is. Have, um, have you updated? You've updated to uh, what do they call this new one? The new operating system, Maverick. 
Yeah, I just updated it last night, so this is the first time I've done this. Oh, interesting. Okay, this must be what I'm looking at is this up here should used to not show up over there because that's what's on your primary. But it shows up now on both, which is interesting because it used to not do that. Okay, let me open this up, and I will just open up a Bible. I will. Here we go. Oh, is that a little small for you? There. Okay. Can you all see that? That work? All right. Changes, changes. All right, let's have a. Let's start with prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll get started. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that we can be here this evening just to improve our skills of being able to read, understand, study through the scriptures, get a better understanding of what you have revealed to us, and that we may learn it and apply it. Father, we continue to pray for our country, pray for our nation, pray for the people in our nation, that they may have their eyes open to the truth and that they may realize the dangers that we are in because of the path that we have been walking for so long. And, Father, we just pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, last time for your assignment, I had you go through the book of James and title each paragraph. Did everybody do that, get that done? I'm not going to have a show of hands, but everybody get that done? Jeff? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, the assignment the next time, the next time, because we're going to talk about some of these connectives again uh, tonight, but the next time I want you to go through and take that same chart, and I want you to look at how the paragraphs are connected from one to the other. And you can put out to the side circle it or whatever you want to, whether it's what the connective is. Is it a continuation, a contrast, uh, there a conclusion? Uh, is it a complete break into a new subject? How, how are the transitions between, uh, between the uh, section? And that, what that will begin to open up for you is where the major breaks are. If, if you go from one paragraph to the next and it's a, it's a, some sort of conclusion or explanation of what's in the previous paragraph, then you know it's not a major division. But when you have a topic change or just a complete break, then you know that that's, um, you're moving into a, a new section and that helps you break down the major divisions that we find in a, in, in, in a, in a book. Okay, now I've got to open up my slide from Bible study before, and we're going to see how this works. Okay, breaking things down. Just a reminder, this is we're still in observation. We're still talking about what you see, and there's a lot to cover in what we see, different, different types of things to, to look for. Uh, in culture and context, what is the theme of the book? Now, at your level, where most of you are, where are you going to go to find a suggestion for what is the theme of the book? What sort of a tool would you look look at? Would you examine? Yeah, if you have a commentary in the introductory section, and a commentary will help. Will give you something like that. What, what's another source? The study Bible introduction. What's another source? Hmm? BKC. Yeah, yeah. Bible knowledge commentaries. That's a good place to a, a great commentary set um, to have. That's one of the things we give the kids who, when they graduate uh, from high school is a copy of the um, of uh, Bible knowledge commentary. Old and New Testament. What else? What's another place you can go? Hmm? 
Yeah, Bible encyclopedia or Bible dictionary. Just look at the whatever the Epistle of James, the Gospel of John, or whatever. All of those types of things give you um, <clears throat> give you some ideas. And when you're starting off and you're trying to look at okay, what's the theme of the book? You read it yourself. Okay, before you ever look to anybody else, read it yourself and try to figure out what is the theme of the book. And uh, and one thing that you can do that we will talk about some more is look for certain words that you'll you, you, you by the second or third time you're reading through James you're starting to say this I, I keep seeing this word you know don't be a hearer and a doer hearer and a doer uh, okay so what's that whole section talking about hearing and doing and so there's repetition of those of those key words. What are the key words that you see? What are the main ideas that keep coming up? That's that's important. As you read through, you're going to jot down ideas. Always have a notebook there and just kind of jot down ideas that come to you as to as to what what those ideas might be. Then when you go and you look at a commentary or something, you look at at three or four. And you'll say, okay, this guy says this, and you make a note. You say, Ryrie Study Bible says this. Um, New King James or, or the Thomas Nelson Study Bible says this. NIV Study Bible says this. Bible Knowledge Commentary says this. Uh, and you can, you might have five, six, or seven, and you'll look at them and you'll go, hmm, they're not all the same. Or you might look at them and go, well, that's that's interesting. They're all almost saying the same thing. So that's one thing to do. Also, as you do your study, it's always better to try to do things yourself rather than just taking somebody else's view on it. You're trying to discover the what the scriptures are saying on your own. So when you do a, a paragraph chart, like I had you do this time for James, listing all the paragraphs in the in the epistle or book, and of course, if you're studying First or Second Kings, that can be a long list. But you go through and you break that down, and then you can start to, you know, identify groupings of those uh, paragraphs that go together, and that gives you an idea of how the author has organized or structured uh, structured his thinking. Then, when you go and you read what somebody else has done, you're going to go, "Wow, I didn't see that," or Wait a minute. What about this? What about that? I'm not sure that's exactly right. It gives you, it's developing your own critical thinking skills so that you're not just dependent upon what somebody else says, but you've actually looked at the material yourself and read it and trying to figure it out on your own. So that's one way to look at the theme of the book. The argument of the book is a little different. The argument of the theme of the book for James. What's the theme of James? Anybody have any ideas? Well, works is part. Works is works in terms of faith and works and hearing and doing. Anybody see a parallel between faith and works and hearing and doing? Yes. Yeah, those are parallel concepts. So that you know, that's all part of the same section. What what is the theme? It's practical, but what's the theme of James? What's the theme of James? If you're going to read read a book and you want to say, what is the theme of the book? Where are you going to look in a book to find the main idea of the book? You're going to find that in the introduction and the conclusion in, in any in any book. So once you go through a book like James, where's the introduction in the book of James? Anybody have any ideas on where the introduction begins? Chapter 1. <laughs> yeah, the introduction begins in chapter 1, verse 2. Verse two and where does it end? Verse 18. 18. Well, 18 and 19. Yeah, it ends in verse 18. That's your introduction. Where's your conclusion? Your conclusion is in chapter 5. Chapter 7 to the end. From verse 7? You said chapter. Verse 7, Pat? Chapter 5, verse 7 to the end. Right. Yeah, that's your conclusion. What are, what are some of your main 
are what do you think are the, some of the key words in chap in five, from five seven down to five twenty? Patience. Patience. Anybody look that up in the Greek to see what that word might be? Interesting. Okay, I'm going to put the inline up there. I'm just going to put the take out the Strong's number, and I'm just going to put the transliterated manuscript and the transliterated lemma and the morphology in there, so we don't get too much information up there. Okay. And that's going to, that'll give you a little insight looking at this. So you have the word patient. What's another key word? How many times is patience used in James? Makrothemia. Anybody look that up? Where would you go to find that information? Concordance. You'd go to a concordance. And you'd look up the word patient. Anybody have a concordance handy? Let me see. I've got one back here. Who wants to look that up? See, we're doing real practical hands-on stuff here. Here you go, John. What's another key word? While John's looking up uh, patient or patiently, what's another word? Perseverance or endurance. Uh, Where do you find that? Chapter 5, 11. Okay, we'll go down, scroll down to verse 11. Indeed, we count those blessed who endure. What's the word there? Hupomeno. Let me see here. I've got, I want to see the manuscript. I just want to see the lemma. Transliterated, yeah, morphology. That's it. Okay. So in eleven, we have the, those who endure. That's a verb. Hupomeno, and then the next where you have heard of the perseverance of Job. What's the Greek word for perseverance? Hupomone. One's the noun form, the other's the verb form. Okay, but it's basically the same word. Okay, John? Seven uses. Seven uses of makrothemia or makrothemeo or, see, you've got a noun and you've got a verb there. How how many do you have in James? Patient and patience. Okay, now look at the number off to the side. Okay, see, where, where's, where's James showing up here? James. Okay, here. Now, see, you have, what's that number? 5281. Did you look it up? No. Okay, so you look it up in the back, and this is Greek, and we almost went to the right page, didn't we? Okay, 5281. So you come down here to, okay, it's going to be on this page, I think, this column, 50. Okay. 5281. Number. That's the number you're looking for. 5281. What number are we at? We were in the 3000s. Oh. Sorry. So I'm looking up now. You. 5281. Hupu money. Yeah, that's Okay. Then what was the? Oh, we were over here. With James. Okay, James 5, 7 is 31, 14. Okay, so you're back up here. Somewhere. 31, 14, macrothemia. Okay, so you have 31, 14 is macrothemia. What's this one? Macrothemia. This is macrothumeo. If it ends with an O, it's a verb. 
That's the noun. Okay? So the 51, 14, 15, 13, 14, 15, that's going to be macrothumel. So when you're looking here at James under patient, you see that in James 5, 7, 10, it's going to be macrothumel, but in 11, it's hupomone. So change how many times? What do you have in James 1? 52, 81, That's going to be hupomone, and you have that in 1, 3, 1, 4. So that gives you a little bit of a spread there. That's just the translation um, for patient. But if you look up the word, give that to Jeff. He's eager to do something. <laughs> look up in, endure. You want to look up endure and persevere. Okay? And you're going to be looking for the word that's a 51-something. That's going to be hupomone or hupomoneo. So that's kind of how you do a word study. But, but see, what you're seeing is that there is, somebody pointed out, you've got perseverance. You've got endurance. Now, if it's translated endurance one place and, and per- perseverance in another and they're the same word, basically the same word in the Greek. What's the difference? How do you know that? What's the difference between patience and endurance? Or, in, excuse me, endurance and perseverance? Where do you find the difference between the meaning of the word patient and the meaning of the word, I mean, the diff- endurance? Yes, you go to the dictionary. Look up endurance and look up perseverance in English. This is one of the things that I drill into a lot of pastors. They're so concerned about finding out what the Greek and the Hebrew says, they don't spend time looking at what the target language is, which is English. Does the English, how do you know if the English word is the right word to translate the Greek word if you don't look the English word up in the diction, in the English dictionary to find what it means? So you gotta look that up as well. So the, the dictionary becomes like your, your best friend. I just about destroyed my Hebrew lexicon in one course in seminary, using it so much. Broke the spine. I had a, a Greek professor who had to buy a new lexicon every three years because he just about destroyed it, just looking, using it, looking at everything up all the time. So you use these, the, these things, but <clears throat> okay. So you're looking here, you have the word endurance here, uh, you've heard of the perseverance of Job and seeing the end intended by the Lord, uh, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful, but above all my brethren, um, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Uh, then talks about, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. So what are we talking about from 7 down through through 12? What's the main idea? You've got patient in verse 7, waiting patiently in verse 7, patient in verse 8, patient again in verse 10. Verse 11, you have endure and persevere. What's he talking about? He's talking about being patient and enduring difficulty. He's, that's your main word. If some, if he uses, if he uses one word and its synonym seven times in five verses, that's what he's talking about. Then you have to say, okay, that he's talking about being patient. What's he saying about being patient and enduring? Well, he's, what he's saying about it is that we need to endure in times of trial and times of difficulty. And then as you go through the rest of um, of the conclusion, <clears throat> you get a couple of examples. You don't get either one of those words again, but but where else in the book does it talk about, uses, uses this vocabulary? Uh, Jeff, you looked up endurance? Yes. Okay. James uh, 1.12 and...
You know, like in, in, in James 1, 1, 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. That's the New King James, no, probably Old King James as well. But it's, is it macrothemia? Are you at endurance again? That's really fine print, isn't it? It's a lot smaller than it used to be. Endures James five eleven. Yeah, go go to the beginning of James. Is it used there? Yeah, see that's on the King James, but but if you looked at or patient, it mentions James. If you looked at patient, which John did, patient is used. The English word patient is used in in James one three. James 1.4, and that introduces your, your topic in, in the introduction. It's used again in verse 12. Blessed is a man who endures temptation. So what's the, what's the topic in the introduction? Same as a conclusion. How about that? So what's the, what is the theme of James? Endurance, learning to endure in times of testing. That's what the theme of James is. Now, the argument of James, the term argument is is used like a, a defense attorney or a prosecutor before the jury presenting his final summation. He's arguing for a certain thing. He's presenting his case for something. And that's what we mean when we talk about the argument of the book. The writer has a theme. What is he saying about that theme? That's his argument. That's what he's trying to get across to us. For example, in Romans, Paul's argument, what's, what's the main key word in, 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 in Romans? We're going to have to go back to Romans 1 again. What's the key word in Romans? Righteousness. 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 So Paul is saying something about righteousness in the book of Romans, he is arguing for how God's acts in, hum- in relation to the human race are righteous and just. That's what he's talking about throughout the whole book. Of, so everything that Paul says in Romans has to do, ultimately, it, you can trace it back to his main idea that he is saying something about the righteousness of God in relation to uh, the human race. James is talking about how Christians need to persevere in the midst of trials. That's his emphasis in his opening introduction. That's his emphasis in his conclusion. In between, he's going to make three major points in relation to uh, endurance, three areas in which we need to persevere. What do you think those three areas are in which we need to persevere? Yeah, she nailed it. Try to be biblical. Quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Quick to hear is the first section. Hearing and doing. Don't be a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. Faith and works are talking about the same thing in different terminology. What what does chapter 3, verse 1 talk about? Chapter 3, verse 1. Yeah, all of a sudden now we've been talking about being quick to hear. Now we're talking about what? Be slow to speak. And then when we get down to uh, chapter 4, verse 1, he doesn't talk use the word anger, but what's he talking about in verse 1? What's verse 1 say? Why do wars and fights, quarrels come up among you? Anger, slow to wrath. So those that's your three divisions. So so James is a great you know, the the thing that's interesting, if you read most commentaries on James, they'll say James is like the New Testament Proverbs. It's just a lot of different paragraphs and verses talking about practical application and there's not really a unifying theme. Yeah, and that's why they misinterpret James most of the time. James has a unifying theme. It is addressed to the believer to challenge the believer to persevere or endure in the midst of trials in three areas, in being quick to hear, that is, you need to listen and apply the word of God, 
And you apply it in two areas, sins of the tongue and mental attitude sins. And then he comes back to the topic of of persevering and enduring in the conclusion. That's what James is all about. All of a sudden, everything in James hangs together. And you, whenever you run into a, an interpretive problem uh, in the book of James, for example, when you get into the section that talks about <clears throat> uh, faith without works is dead, now you have, you have a, a theme and an argument to relate that to. That's going to eliminate certain options, like what this is talking about is unbelievers. He's telling believers how to persevere. He's not, t- he's not talking about the fact that you may not really be saved because you don't persevere. He's talking about the fact that, that if, that, that faith, if, if you're not applying what you're believing, which is what you're hearing, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God, if you're not, uh, doing what you're hearing, then your faith is useless. Therefore, it's a dead faith. It's not a non-it's not non-existent. It's not that you're not really a believer. It's that your faith isn't doing you any good. So once you come to understand the theme, the argument, then that gives you the flyover orientation to the whole book. And then the details that, uh, in terms of interpretation, which is what we'll get into in the second part of the course, that starts to uh, fall out and, in terms of you're now able to see what, what's going on there because you've identified what he's talking about. And listen, pay attention to conversations you're in sometimes, especially if you're walking up on a conversation, your work or home, or you listen to your kids or whatever, and you come in in the middle of the conversation, what is your mind doing? When all of a sudden you're walking in, you're just kind of standing on the sideline, your kids are talking about something or somebody works talking about a movie they saw or something they did over the weekend or whatever, what is your mind doing? You're trying to figure out what they're saying. And the clues are the words that they're using. Sometimes we use words that can mean two or three different things, and so you go down a rabbit trail and you think, oh, they're talking about something. And then all of a sudden you go, oh, no, they're not. They're talking about this other thing. That's what we do in Bible study. We start off and we just got into this thing and we read the book and we're trying to figure out what is it saying. And we start off with a guess. Scholars call it a heurism. It's a guess. This is what he's talking about. And then as we read a little more, we say, okay, how does this, if that's what he's talking about, how does this relate to it? And we go, I don't see how that relates to it. Well, wait a minute. Maybe we misunderstood what he's talking about. And so there's this constant uh, sort of a guess or a hypothesis, and then um, it doesn't fit the evidence. It's just like it's the kind of logic, and there's a name for it, which I never can remember, that it's not <clears> – <throat> there's, there's inductive logic, there's deductive logic, and then this is a third kind of logic that is like the logic that – uh that a homicide detective uses. Uh, he, he looks and he says, okay, here's the scenario. I know that this is true, this is true, this is true, and this is true. If those four or five things are true, then the only scenario under which those five things could be true would be this. It's neither deductive logic nor inductive logic, but he's creating a model or a a, a guess as to what happened based upon certain other things being true. And the only way that those five or six things could be true is if this is this certain action or pattern happened. So that's what what you're doing. It's it's not something that is easy. It demands thought. It demands discipline. Demand, and you read things over and over again. And it's 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 not not simple. It's not easy, and it takes takes um, it takes time. One of the ways we do this when we start breaking down the details of the passage, so you start off and you read it a lot of times like we've done, you're, you're doing a broad spectrum study. You're, you're looking at what are the big ideas that are in the book of James. The next thing that happens is you're going to want to start getting into the details of a passage, getting into the details of the text. And that's where I was talking about last time. You look at a paragraph and you break down the paragraph into into the the uh, basic sentences. And so, if we were going to start with the introduction in James, let me go up here and 
Click that off. We're going to start through the introduction of James. We did this a little bit last time, and we used this as a, as a structure. Oh, I'm in James 5. Let me get into James 1. You start off, you see 2 and 3 is a verse, 4 is a verse, Five is uh, another uh, another independent. I mean, rather, verse two and three is a sentence. Four is a sentence. Five is a sentence. Six is a sentence. And usually, you have a break between uh, two through four is a, a paragraph. Some some Bibles though break at eight. They'll say two through eight is one paragraph. And you start looking at just we're just going to work with the paragraph, and you start drilling down on the details. It's when we start drilling down on the details that we start getting some ideas saying, oh, wait a minute. Uh, maybe you thought James was talking about just practical obedience to God's word because you hit the first chapter and it's talking about hearing and doing and hearing and doing, and you sort of think, okay, this book is about doing what the Bible says. But then you get here and you realize there's this repetition of the idea of endurance and perseverance, and that comes across in the first paragraph, and you're thinking, how does that relate? Well, maybe this is maybe this is my main idea, and the illustration of it is is hearing and doing. So you start reworking your ideas and your supposition on what the what the passage means, and it takes uh, takes a little time. And so you start breaking it down, and as you break it down, I can't tell you how many times when I am studying that I sit down and I put the sentence, cop, I paste the sentence into my, my notes, and then I paste it in a second time, and I go in, and between every word I hit the, hit the return key so that I break, have a, just a vertical line, a column of all the words in the text. And then next to each English word, I put in the Greek word. And at that point, all of a sudden, some things will start stand, stand. Wow, I didn't realize that. Look at that word that's there. That's that's really interesting. I I hadn't expected that that word to be there. Where was I tonight? Let's. Um, we're going to look at this passage in a minute. Turn to was it Mark nine? Mark nine. This is, I love it when I'm in some other passage and all of a sudden I have one of those aha moments. Uh, aha! Mark 9. Okay. Mark 9. This is for you, Franklin. And Hebrews 6. I'm going to put Hebrews 6 up here on the board. This is one of those uh, passages that... Um, and the warning passage that people always get tied up in knots over because they think that this passage talks about losing your salvation. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they were to fall away, to renew them again to repentance... Uh, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. The key to this is really understanding those those examples that are listed there who were once enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, become partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the Word of God. Does this mean they're 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 saved? Okay, and, and the key word there that I'm honing in on is the word tasted. Now what does it mean when you think of tasting something, what image comes into your mind? With the English word tasting. Yeah. Just a sample, right, exactly. It's like you go through the grocery store and they give you little samples of this and that so you just taste it. However, if you taste it, have you really taken it and made it part of your own? No, you're just getting a taste. If you're going to a wine tasting and you do it the way the professionals do it, you know, you just take a little, a little bit, you kind of swish it around your mouth and then you spit it out. You don't even swallow it. You're just getting a taste of it. When, when we first moved to Connecticut, um, <clears throat> since we didn't own a house, we were just renting a place. We had the weekends to run around a lot. We went to a, uh, went over to Newport, Rhode Island, 
and they were having a, um, uh, 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 I mean, a, a clam chowder tasting thing at a at a seafood at a festival over there, and so we went around. And and there were like 35 restaurants that had entered into the the clam chowder tasting, and so you'd go to each one and you'd get your that little bitty paper cup with about an ounce or less of clam chowder in it. But after you've gone to 32 restaurants, how many ounces of clam chowder have you had? <laughs> you've had a quart. You're full. And it, that was that was really good. So so then you've had a whole meal and you're full. But a tasting is just a little bit. Now look at Matthew at, at excuse me Mark nine one. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, "Assuredly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power." Just guessing at the idiom. What do you think taste death means? Die. Die. Is that just a sampling, just having a little brush with death? No. That shows you that this idea of taste doesn't mean just getting a sample to see what the flavor is, just to become a little bit acquainted with it, but it's making something fully fully and totally experiencing it uh, for yourself. And so when you take that back to, to Hebrews 5, you know that what, what it means to taste the good word of God, taste the heavenly gift, is that you're saved. Okay, that's very clear salvation language. Okay, that's just one of those little golden nuggets you discover when you're, when you're reading through some different things. So last time we talked, let me go back to our uh, the PowerPoint slideshow here. Yeah. That way you don't say, well, it's translated taste in both places, but it's a different Greek word. Right, right, of course. And and that's ultimately what you need to do when when you're studying from the English. You can gain great insights, but you also, to to really check them, you always have to go with an interlinear or something like that and, and check the original. You know, I've made mistakes like that. You look at something and you're in a hurry and you just say, oh, that means this, it must be that word, and then you get a chance later on to look it up and you go, oops. Okay, what's the structure of the book? And we're going to talk about structure, and we did this a little bit last time with the paragraphing that that I was showing you. Uh, what kind of book is it, the occasion, purpose, key issues, all those things can co- you can come up by reading an introduction to the book. Then we looked at word studies, identifying the key words, How's the author use them? Things of that nature. And then syntax is where I wanted to go. What are the connective words? That's what I want you to do now is what are those connections between the paragraphs? So you have certain connections and relationships between the paragraphs, but then you also have connections inside of a paragraph. And what those connective words do is they show you how the argument, how the author's thought is developing. If he says first this, second, then third, you know that he's enumerating certain things. He's making a list. And then he says, and then, or therefore, now you know he's drawing a conclusion. So that's developing those those structural ideas. Uh, you determine the sentences. We talked about that last time. Identifying the main clauses and key verbs, this kind of thing. This is what I really want to work on tonight is... Um, <clears throat> the rest of our time here, wanna, uh, we'll go. We got uh, started a little bit late. Uh, Mark, you're at the end. Would you check that air conditioner setting over there? It feels warm in here. What could it be? Uh, probably about 72. But this is that weird time of year when it starts getting cool and it's not really cold enough to turn on the heater or warm enough to turn on the air conditioner. It just kind of flat. Was it on 72? 73. 73, okay. Okay, so I want to come back and look at that, but let me just kind of go over this a minute. When we look at a paragraph, and I'm going to do this with, uh, go back to James. When we look at a paragraph, so two through four is a paragraph, uh, how does the next paragraph begin? If, 
then let's say five through eight's a paragraph right, and then how does the ninth verse begin? That's the next paragraph. Hmm? Let. What's going on there? What is what is being said at, at the beginning of verse verse nine? It's a command. Is it connected to the previous verse? No. No connection. It's not a but. It's not an and. It's not a therefore. It's, it's, it's a clean break to a, ne- to a new, new sentence, new topic. So that's why there's a paragraph break there. The next, um, look at verse 10. How does verse 10 begin? Hmm? But. But it should be and. Well, it says, let the lowly brother, but the rich. What's being con- Is that a contrast, or is it the same thing? It's a contrast. He's contrasting the brother in poor circumstances, the lowly brother, with the brother who is wealthy. Okay, so you have a contrast there. How does verse 11 begin? And what does that tell you? It's an explanation. It's probably an explanation. So you see there's a, there's a connection between the thoughts in those three verses. How does verse 12 begin? Blessed. Yeah, blessed is the man. Is there anything there that connects it to the previous verse? No. So you know there's a, there's a clean break there. Um, verse 13. It says, let no one say when he is tempted. Is there a connection to the previous verse? Not in terms of a connective word, but in terms of the topic. The verse 12 says, blessed is the man who endures temptation. And then it says, let no one say when he is tempted. Okay, so you see the connection isn't through a connective word, but it is through the topic. It's still talking about the same thing. Verse 14, how does verse 14 start? But, and so what is this? It's, it's a could be contrast or what Jeff was talking about, it could be a now. You know, it, it could be now each one. And, and I would guess that um, when you get in, look down, let me scroll down here, but each one is tempted in his own way. Uh, the Greek there is de, which is a, just a transition. It can be and, now, or, or but. So it's more of a transition as opposed to a hard contrast. How does verse 15 start? Then, so that shows a 14 flows into 15, and then how does 16 begin? Do not be deceived. So it's, it, but it, it's, all this is within the same paragraph. You might put a break between 15 and 16, I'm not sure, but just, just looking at, at those connective words, we see how they flow together. How does verse 19 begin? This command. Well, yeah, see, I'm looking at the King James, that's right, it's a command. Know this, so it's a break. It starts with a straight command, and it's not necessarily related to what's, what's going on before. How does verse 21 begin? Therefore, Therefore, so now we're drawing a conclusion that's out of the introduction because this is where it starts beginning the issue of, of the word and being a doer of the word and, uh, and, and not a hearer only. Okay, so what we're do- looking at in that is just those external connectives. Now when you go through and you're looking at the internals of a paragraph, we're just going to go back to um, let's look at our paragraph that started with verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. When we start with that, we're going to look at a couple of different things. What did I say we want to identify first? Well, words that are repeated, you want to look for those. But what's the first thing you need to look for is you want to identify what kind of clause. Independent clause. Yeah, your independent clause. So that means you have to, the first thing you have to identify are your finite verbs. And each finite verb is going to have a subject. So blessed is the man who endures temptation. Okay? So this is kind of a weird sentence because the is in italics, y'all know what that means in the English? 
when, a, when they put a word in italics, that means there's not a corresponding word for it in the Greek. It's supplied because that's the sense of the passage, but it's not required in Greek, so it's just, uh, it's just understood and indicated by that. So you have an initial noun, blessed, uh, is the man, uh, and then who endures temptation. So you have, uh, this would be your, 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 uh, subject and your predicate nominative, uh, the man. And then it goes on to say who, uh, who is the subject. The man is the subject of this verb. The man, uh, endures, uh, temptation. So this is an awkward, um, Awkward sentence, he will receive the crown of life, uh, is your, probably your main, main verb, your main finite verb here, because your other verbs are tied to a relative clause. So he will receive the crown, uh, the crown of life. So you go through and you want to identify your verbs. What, Jack? Yeah, I see. I'm trying to hustle here. You want to, you want to, uh, identify your subjects, your verbs and their subject. And just in each sentence, what's the main verb, what's the main subject, who performs the action? Then you move on to the next stages of, of the grammar in terms of looking at the uh, direct object, the indirect object, and the other parts of speech. And I want to talk about that because that may be some time but since some of you have really looked at a grammar book. And so we, I want to talk about that a little bit. But it's just identifying those things and then... The relationship of the of the uh, clauses, and I've learned I don't know any other way to do this than just to look at different verses and ask you questions and have you guess rightly or wrongly on what they are, and just just develop that ex- practical exercise of doing it. And in the process, if you say, "Well, I don't understand why you say that," ask me the question because I, I just don't know any other way to communicate that. So let's take a little break now. Uh, Eddie can redo the um, video or whatever, and we can get some water and little carbs or something to put you to sleep, and then we'll come back for the second half. It's really funny on, on. But I think that the crowns and rewards are given and distributed at the judgment seat of Christ. Which, 